Welcome to the Value Perspective podcast on decision-making. We're a group of value investors working together on the global value team here at Schroders. As investors, we have to tackle decision-making in uncertain environments every day. In this podcast series, we speak to people from other walks of life who also share the challenge of making decisions in complex and uncertain environments. We cover topics such as how to think in probabilities, tools for overcoming psychological biases, and how we can learn and improve decision-making in complex environments. We hope you enjoy it. This podcast is for investment professionals only. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation to any of the funds, services, or products, or to adopt any investment strategy. The views and opinions contained herein are those of the individuals to whom they are attributed to. It may not necessarily represent views expressed or reflected in other Schroeder's communications, strategies, or funds. Any reference to sectors, countries, stocks, or securities are for illustrative purposes only, and not a recommendation to buy or sell any financial instrument, securities, or adopt any investment strategy. Hi everyone, and welcome back to TVP. Normally, I would say this episode is part of the TVP mini-series on ESG, but seeing as we've been going since COP26, it feels like a series in its own right. On this episode, Andrew Linden and Juan hosted Professor Robert Hayes, who's an expert on all things nuclear. Robert is an associate professor of nuclear energy at North Carolina State University. He is also a certified health physicist and a licensed nuclear engineer. Also worth noting, Robert started a TikTok account to help younger generations understand all things nuclear and fight back against some of the most common myths and misconceptions. That's how we came across his work. On this episode, we will cover the myths that surround nuclear energy, both amongst younger and older generations, modern power plant nuclear design versus old designs, thorium versus uranium, the great analogy of pasteurization as applied to nuclear, and finally, the role of social media in nuclear energy. Enjoy. Professor Robert Hayes, welcome to the Value Perspective Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. How are you? I'm okie doke. How are you? I'm all right. Thank you very much. Where do we find you today? I'm just outside of Raleigh, North Carolina, where I am on faculty of the Nuclear Engineering Department at North Carolina State University. What sort of subjects and to what sort of students do you teach? So I teach nuclear engineering. Um, but I've recently put together a, a online graduate certificate. You can do it either uh, on campus or online in health physics. So it's a formal uh, graduate credential. I also put together a minor in health physics. Now, in, in the past, I've taught radiation and reactor fundamentals, but now I'm really just focused on teaching the courses that support those credentials. That would be health physics, radiation safety, radiological assessment, nuclear waste management, and radiological emergency response. My research is largely in nuclear forensics and radiological emergency response, uh, including radiation detection and radiation shielding. So everything that has to do with radiation safety or radiological protection with a focus in nuclear nonproliferation. That's really interesting. What was the main drive to start a TikTok account to explain very complex (laughs) physics? Oh, that's a that's a bit of a story. All right. So I teach grad school. Most of the classes I teach are, are graduate classes. And a lot of them are they're 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 a dual option where you can do it as a senior or you can do it as uh like a master's course. And so it's a, a 400 level senior course or a 500 level master's course. And the only difference between the courses is that if you take it as a graduate student, you have to do a research project. And so it's really the same course, but if, you, if you're if you a graduate student, you have to do a research project. And the research project has to be, say, a formal professional society transactions paper, where the rubric is the same rubric that you have at, from the American Society of Engineering Education that they would use, the rubric that they use at their professional society meetings. So the, the same rubric for the paper and the, and the PowerPoint and the video. And so you have to do all of that just as though you're doing a formal professional society presentation. And that's what makes the, the the senior level course into a graduate course. And because we're NC State, it can't be something easy. It has to be a hard subject. It can't just be, oh, I'm just gonna, you know, research, you know, what students think about the cafeteria, you know, that's an F, <laughs> right? It's gotta be a hard <laughs> subject. And the way that I guaranteed that it would be a hard subject 
is because we're uh, our professional society that's affiliated with nuclear engineering is called the American Nuclear Society. And they came out with the 10 grand challenges uh, some time ago. And so the easy way to make to guarantee it had to be a hard topic. As I said, you had to pick one of the 10 grand challenges and you have to make you have to demonstrate just like the rubric uh, meaningful progress in one of these 10 grand challenges. And one of the 10 grand challenges uh, happened to be public communication. And so anywhere from a third to half the students would pick that, right? And these are really smart. I mean, we probably only accept, you know, 10 or 20% of all applicants. So this is the cream of the crop. And these are brilliant graduate students. And they're they, they, over the years, it was like, it took about three or four years for me to realize there was a consistent theme in, in what they were saying. And what they were saying is that in order to address public communication, they need to have a social media champion, somebody that is looked at in social media in some way or another as an expert that speaks their language that can explain to them what the actual risks are, what it is that, that they're afraid of, right? So if you were if you were wanting to talk to somebody about astrology, you would want an astronomer, right, that could actually talk about the history and the basics and and what is the theory behind astrology to people that you were trying to reach to say, you know, what does the actual science say? And for multiple years, I had been waiting for these students to do that, right? They're young people, right? It's like, all right, this is a great idea. Like one student had a thing about memes, how you could do it with memes, communicate with memes. Another one talked about uh, social media accounts. Another one would talk about um, just being an influencer and all of these kinds of things. And none of them would do it. And I would say, why you should do it. This is a great idea. This is, I mean, you did some great research. You demonstrated why things haven't worked in the past and, and why things are working now. And none of them would do it. They always, that was always somebody else needs to do it. This is yes. Uh, if I could do that, then you're right, but I can't do that. This needs to be somebody else. And that was just consistently coming out to be the case. And so what ended up happening is that during COVID, I thought, you know, they're, I'm just not going to get them to do it. And so I said, finally said, you know, uh, somebody has to do it, right? I, I believe them. I actually believe them. There are too many of them with really good arguments in their research that I finally decided I I, I can't disagree. I, I, somebody's got to do it. So during COVID, I basically started doing the videos. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm stuck at home anyway, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, lo and behold, <laughs> that's where that TikTok channel came from. Professor, I have to say that of the many things that crossed my mind about that story, I never thought that that was the origin of of your TikTok channel. I actually thought that it was more about trying to communicate something very difficult to the younger generations. That is what it is. But the, the point was that it, that was what the grand challenge was from the ANS is how do you do that? Right. And the students all said, this is how you need to do that. You need to talk to them in their language and it's going to have to be through social media and you need an influencer that can speak their language. They just weren't willing to, you know, put in the elbow grease and start making the videos and start to communicate the facts well, in a way that they could digest. It's clearly working because we came across your research and your work through uh, seeing one of your TikToks. But I wonder what has been the feedback so far. It's been mixed. Um, it's interesting. So the funny thing is, is that originally when it started, when it just started to take off, the other faculty really frowned on it. It was like, why would anybody do anything with TikTok, right? That thing's <laughs> going to get banned. It's uh, it's it's silly. It's people dancing, right? And stuff like that. And and so originally it was fairly negative. But, you know, that was the, but after listening to all of these brilliant graduate students just hammer the subject, right? It was like, you know, I'm going to take the heat. I'm going to take the heat. And I did. And eventually the other faculty came around and they, 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 they've, they've actually said, you know, I think I was wrong about judging you for trying to do this, you know, uh, because this, this image of TikTok is very negative as a general rule. It would be like, I don't know what a good analogy was, but uh, eventually they started to come around. There's probably, I'm sure there's still people that think it's a bad idea to do public outreach uh, with social media. Um, but uh, I've had a number of faculty that have said that, that they've changed their mind. Well, we great, we think it's a great idea and we congratulate you for that. And we are fans of your TikTok account. So at least on this side of the Atlantic, you have some followers and admirers uh, for your work. Um, that's, I think, a great segue to one of my first questions, which is, and please correct us if, if we are wrong, but it seems to us that there are a lot of misconceptions about all things nuclear. 
and, oh, yeah. and we would like to ask your opinion about what is the biggest myth or misunderstanding about nuclear you find in the younger generations you teach and then what is it what it is or is it the same with the older generations uh, the biggest overall myth is that nuclear has an unacceptable risk And uh, largely, I believe you could attribute that to not understanding what risk is. It does require that you have some very fundamental understanding of probability and statistics. Uh, the, the simplest definition of risk is it's consequences times probability. And if you don't understand probability, then risk is something that you really can't understand, even though you think you do. Uh, in other words, well, you can't quantify it. That's how you quantify it. So you give a number to it, a metric. And so you say, well, you know, Chernobyl is just an unacceptable occurrence. And so the risk is really just whether it's an unacceptable occurrence or not. But that's not how you define that, right? The sun going supernova is an unacceptable occurrence. Um, but since we can't control that, we can control nuclear. And so that's how we can, you know, uh, address an unacceptable risk is by making it go away, by not allowing the possibility even being there without considering Uh, probability times consequence. And that's what actually makes risk is that product. And when you look at that product, nuclear turns out to be brilliant. If you, if you exclude Chernobyl, it turns out it's got the lowest risk overall. If you include Chernobyl, then it's got a comparable risk to solar, right? People falling off of roofs and getting electrocuted and whatnot from installing solar panels, you know, per gigawatt hour, nuclear is just incredibly safe. But that's because you've got to look at it in terms of risk in a quantifiable fashion where it's consequences times probability. But that's the case with the younger generations, or do you think that it applies to the older generations as well? It's pretty much everybody. If you don't actually, if you've never taken a statistics course, then it's almost a, a, a different language. Being able to talk about detection limits and thresholds and statistical significance. If you haven't had a statistics course, Being able to interpret statistical significance for uh, an outcome is going to be really difficult for people it, because that requires that uh, that concept of probability. Oh, that's really interesting. And that probably means, I guess, being realistic that the the vast majority of the public are, are never going to have those skills, perhaps to the extent, obviously, that, that you do, and perhaps to the extent necessary to make you know informed risk based judgments on on nuclear power. We've talked to a number of people about this, one of which was a lady called Meredith Angwin, who's done a lot of work on the, the grid in the US. And she had the idea of, you know, potentially just taking people, you know, to actually wander around the nuclear power stations, take them inside it. And uh, that, that struck us as an interesting idea in terms of bridging that intangible kind of risk quality that nuclear has. So it, is there are there any things like that that could be used to engage the public, you know, that don't require them to get up to speed on probability or to, to go through the numbers in a way that, you know, they're unlikely to do, I guess. That would be helpful. What that's not going to address is the, the radiophobia that is rooted in the unknown of cancer. That tends to be a major driver. Um, an example I was talking about not understanding risk is that it's not uncommon to find people that think that it is an intolerable risk. Let's say you do a gigawatt of hour, gigawatt hour or gigawatt year of energy from a nuclear power plant uh, or from a solar concentrated solar facility, and both give you a gigawatt year. Now, if somebody at the concentrated solar plant falls down off of the tower and dies, that's an industrial accident. And people understand that, right? That's a lot of energy and for only one death, right? That's far better than you would get, say, at coal or something like that. And so it's still really rel quite safe in terms of the, the, the fatality rate, right? You want fatality rates to be as close to zero as possible if you and, and actually to attain that. And so that when you're really close to zero like that, that looks really good. But if you had a gigawatt year of nuclear and you had somebody get exposed, then that becomes terrifying because now if they had, say, they, they, they busted their limit, instead of getting, say, five rem, they got 10 rem. Now that person has a probability of getting cancer anywhere from five to 20 years from then, right? They didn't just die. They just got a big dose and they didn't die, but now they have a probability of cancer. Now you can follow that story. And now you can say, let's see if this person gets cancer. Because if they do, you're going to, even though they you might've only increased their probability of cancer, you know, by a percent or two, 
if they have cancer, you're just going to say that it caused by it was caused by that, even though it only increased that probability by you know less than a percent. Say say ten rem, you got an increase of about a half a percent uh, over your natural incidence of around forty percent. And so this becomes a story that now you can follow, and it's terrifying because now will you get cancer? Right now you have this higher probability, and if you do, will you die? And you're not going to know until some period of time. Even though with the other plant you outright killed somebody, and this one you just might get cancer. And even if you do, probably it's treatable. And one is considered horribly worse than the other. Right, the stress, the um, uh, the uncertainty. The fear that goes with knowing that you were overexposed for radiation. And so that's where that concept of risk is completely out of whack, right? One person gets to live a normal life for five to 20 years with no effect other than your fear. The other person just died. So, so make- how does one, um, so obviously as a skilled communicator like yourself, how does one kind of square that circle of those kind of intangibles based around fear that are, you know, inevitably in the, in the public's mind and the the need to understand those probabilities in order to make a a more informed judgment, I suppose. So So my approach is let's just say that whole diatribe that I just did was less than three minutes. I put that in a video and post it. (laughs) (laughs) I want to explore something that Meredith and Wayne mentioned on this podcast as well. And she said that maybe one of the best ways to remove a little bit the fear element is if you could show how nuclear reactors work, how power is generated by nuclear sources. Because you will correct me if I'm wrong, but over the course of the last 70 years, the design of these things have changed a lot and it has improved very meaningfully. But people are very much stuck in the Chernobyl, the Long Mile, and maybe the Fukushima. So maybe could you explain what is the probability of an accident happening given the new designs and what the difference are, if any, of the new designs versus what they were probably two generations ago? So there's a number of points there. Let me, let me split that into two topics, if I can. The issue of public communication on reactor design, reactor theory, and old versus new, right? The old 70s stuff that we've got deployed today versus next generation stuff that we still want to deploy. It's got all, got all the new technology in it. <clears throat> so uh, with all due respect to Meredith, I don't think that that would really help public fear for people to learn how nuclear power plants work. I think it would help, but I don't think it would make much difference because the, the su- subject I brought up before, right? The, the radiophobia. Here's an analogy. Um, people are terrified of nuclear weapons. And when a nuclear weapon happens, really, this just kind of contradicts the public notion. Really, the overwhelming damage is from the blast. It's not the radiation. Mm-hmm. The radiation is a trivial component because you can increase somebody's probability of getting cancer with the radiation, but the blast is getting anybody that's in uh, within the blast range, you're just dead. And then there's a range outside that where you die from the heat. And then there's a range outside that where you're going to be dying from impact, Right whacking up against a wall or something like that. And then there's a tiny little range outside there where you're going to get a massive dose, tiny little ring all the way around there where you'll live and you'll get a dose. Then you'll have an increased probability of cancer. And a good example is Hiroshima, right? That's a thriving city. It had a nuclear weapon take place there, but it's a thriving city. The radiation was a small fraction of the actual damage that came from the nuclear weapon. And teaching people how nuclear weapons work I don't think it's going to address the radiophobia, the fear from the radiation. It's just my opinion, of course. And you could teach people how nuclear weapons work, but that doesn't address that fear from the cancer. And that seems to be the main driver is it's always the, the, the fear of the cancer from radiation exposure, whether it's nuclear waste, nuclear accidents, or nuclear weapons. It's usually the, the radiation. Now, some people are, are reasonable and say, yeah, it's the blast, right? It's leveling a city. That's Pretty but, big, but, right? I mean, that's an enormous, enormous effect. Ch- um, Chernobyl being a power plant is more in people's minds from a radiation perspective than the nuclear bomb going off uh, in 1945. Is that correct? I would say so. When it comes to nuclear power plants, yes. If you were able to, to show somebody that, you know, Chernobyl is, you know, it's a red herring. It really doesn't apply to modern technology. It has really nothing to do with modern reactors. 
then they'll they'll often default to either the the well there's the nuclear waste issue and then there's the nuclear non-proliferation issue because they're they see those as being married that any nuclear power plant could be a chernobyl if you are able to divorce them from that concept that any nuclear power plant is a chernobyl waiting to happen then you've still got those other issues but it, it's almost always going to be driven under uh, that underpinning uncertainty that comes with a probability of cancer incidents from any radiation exposure and that that's been my experience to be the main driver. And then, so how have the signs of these plants changed to the point that it has reduced the risk or the probability of a Chernobyl happening? So there's some really exciting technology that comes out. So what happened with Chernobyl, Fukushima, and uh, Three Mile Island is that you had a phase change in the core, in the reactor core. You had a phase change. So with Three Mile Island, the fuel melted. With Fukushima, again, you had the fuel melting in the core, but the actual release came from a phase change of the coolant of the uh, spent fuel pool storage. It was the phase change, the materials that were supposed to stay in a certain phase. And with Chernobyl, the phase change of the water is what actually caused the explosion. Once that water, the moderator, the coolant, once that coolant was removed, then the, the then you had another phase change. And so it's the phase changes that drive any kind of major event of those sorts. And so the latest tech is including, it addresses having fuel that if you remove the coolant, because that's what happened in all three of those, the active removal of coolant uh, caused phase changes in the fuel. And that's what happened with all three. The fuel had a phase change because you removed the coolant. The, the newer tech allows you to literally stop the coolant altogether and the heat in the core is going, it's got sufficient heat capacity that it will just absorb the heat and get hotter and hotter and hotter and not have a phase change. And that's uh, that, that right there is a passive safety feature that prevents any kind of upset on the, on the uh, active engineered or passive engineered controls that are placed because you don't have a phase change. Everything is staying in the same way that it is. If you've got liquid fuel, say for molten salt, it stays liquid. It doesn't boil. If I've got solid fuel, like with the Trizo, fuel. It again, it's not going to melt. The laws of physics are really straightforward. It might not seem that way, but they 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 still apply in a nuclear reactor as anywhere else. And the equilibrium temperature of something that's generating heat is going to be found when the heat generation rate is equal to the heat extraction rate. And so if I have a passive, just passive heat extraction rate, I can calculate for a heat generation rate what that temperature is going to be. And if that temperature is substantially below what would be required for a phase change, you have passive safety. And so a lot of these new designs have that. And on top of that, we have uh, far better electronics, far better materials than we had back in the 70s that we're using in our current fleet. So it seems within kind of public policy at the moment, as um, you know, the arguments of people like yourself and I guess, um, you know, some people somewhere understanding the reality of generating electricity and so on with, without carbon emissions. There's a kind of an uneasy balance between those realities and the, the, the physics of them and the, the demographic issues surrounding them and the, the PR, basically, that the, the politicians need to stay on the right side of in order to get those things done. So what, what level of confidence, if any, do you have that the, the politician, you know, the realities will win out and the politicians won't continue to play to the, the kind of the short-term public uh, sentiment, I guess? So a large part of the problem historically was that one of the political parties here in the United States had official party platform opposition to nuclear energy. And so that means right out of the gate, half the people in the country are likely going to adopt that narrative that it's bad and evil and needs to just simply be banned if your political party promotes that. Now, not everybody is going to believe everything that their political party says, but that does generate uh, a narrative that is easy to adopt because of you know our need to socialize and and adopt a narrative to be part of a tribe. Well, that political party recently removed that opposition to nuclear energy, and now that political party says that they uh, support advanced nuclear. And that's pretty much the only thing that's out there that is coming out is advanced nuclear. The old '70s designs that we have, nobody's pitching those anymore. It's only the newer tech that anybody even wants or is is thinks is even worth. Uh, investing in because of the benefits that come with using the latest technology. So th there is hope for advanced nuclear in that sense that both political parties now no longer oppose it. 
And so if in theory that, that wins out, and, and let's hope that it does, how, how do we trade off the, the theory of that versus the, you know, making it a reality? Because, you know, with, there are a number of countries out there, the UK would be one of them that have had supposedly new nuclear schemes going on for a while. They're, they're theoretically under construction and so on. But the, the cost and the, the time frame of, of these things always seem like the benefits of that are always a decade down, down the road. Is there... Is that an accurate perception or are there things that can be done to, to, to do things more quickly? You're talking about the cost and schedule issues with new nuclear builds. Yes, right? that's right. Of conventional nuclear, but yeah. Yeah. So if, you're, if you want to have something that long term is going to be highly cost effective, then say the AP1000 like we have at Vogel down in Georgia is very attractive. If that's going to last for 80 years then it's going to be extremely, then, then you start to have cost effective, even if it's overrun, right? Because when you overrun, you when you're building something like that, you take out loans to build it. And the long, if it if you don't meet that schedule, you're paying interest on those loans, right? And you're not being able to start paying off that loan. And so the overall money, uh, the return takes a lot longer because of that, right? If you're not paying for the thing with cash out of pocket, which rarely ever happens. I don't think, I don't know if that's ever happened. And so the problem there is that most people aren't willing to wait 80 years for a good return on their investment. They're wanting something much shorter and you can get a much shorter return on investment from something like solar and wind. You put it in and you turn it on and it's fairly straightforward. And so it comes down to deciding what is the long, what long-term is best, what long-term is best. And, and when that, that actually is going to, Breakthrough is hard to say. Now, once one of the, the what the the current uh, nuclear industry is pitching are small modular reactors. The idea being that if I have everything for the most part being built in a factory, then I can do these more cost effective. The old way that we've been doing it with uh, with building these larger power plants is you basically build it right there. It's like building a you know sky rise. They're all custom built. They're specific to that particular square plot of land. And you you make it to, to to fit that with the small modular reactors the the majority of the manufacturing is done at a factory and then it's all shipped and assembled on site and so the the argument being that long term if we do a bunch of these then it then that brings down the cost and the schedule in a way that makes it so that you have a much shorter period of time to get back your return on investment and so the the government has been trying to help that the Department of Energy has been funding some of these organizations to get to try to get to that point where the, it becomes attractive to the investors because all energy eventually, almost all energy forms require an investor, somebody with a bunch of money that's trying to figure out where to put their money to bring them more money. And usually that is finding its way into solar and wind. And how far away is, you know, if the modular technologies do take off and, and so on, how, how far away do you think we are from seeing those deployed at scale within the UK or the US or another developed economy? Well, the current estimates are within this decade, if you talk to the vendors, and they may have the best estimates. I mean, you would hope that they would, but then there are always potential upsets that could stall that. So I really am not the person to ask as to the timeline, but that's what I've heard them saying is that there are a number of uh, demonstration programs that should be coming out, but it's just onesies and twosies. It's like uh, one at Idaho National Lab and there, another one in Utah and, and some smaller versions that are basically going to be proof of concept, so to speak. And could you just um, give us a few words on on how they 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 work, basically, and how that's different to the, the much larger scale uh, reactors that everyone imagines? Well, they, the biggest part probably is the newest tech, that they have these very passive safety features, the idea being that if all the worst possible things could possibly happen do happen, uh, then nobody gets hurt. By having these passive safety features, if the worst that could possibly happen, you remove you remove all the coolant from the core, and the core is just sitting there uh, generating radioactive decay heat and uh, getting super super hot. Uh, the worst that would happen is you would have an on-site release, but it doesn't go the the radioactivity that goes off-site is insufficient to trigger the EPA recommendations for an evacuation. So right now, if you could get one REM offsite, one REM to the public, they can issue an evacuation recommendation to the governor, right? Now, put that in scale. One REM is about what you get for a CT scan. 
but at that threshold for the public, since they didn't ask for it, they're really just as a as a conservative measure, the EPA can issue evacuation recommendations. Now, by two rem, they probably will. By five rem, they have to. And two rem is what you would use internationally. That's kind of that's basically where you would go with, like, say, Fukushima. Somebody could get two rem, they'll issue evacuation recommendations. And that what's nice about these newer designs is you don't hit that threshold. You don't have to change the regulation. Nothing needs to change other than a recognition that the new passive safety features just bought you something. The only evacuation for the public would be on site and there is just shelter in place. And you wait until you can uh, bring everything under control and then you can uh, get the public out and then then recover from whatever happened. But there's no offsite evacuation. So you don't end up with an exclusion zone if the worst thing that could possibly happen does happen. And so that's what's really big about this newest tech. When you, when you break it down in small modular reactors, you do end up paying more per gigawatt hour, but it's scalable. The idea being that instead of only siting a plant, say a gigawatt plant, you're not going to be able to utilize that unless you need a gigawatt of energy. And not everywhere needs, you know, a, a gigawatt of energy installed on the grid. Some places need, you know, a third of that or two thirds of that. And the small modular reactors allow you to do that. And so you can actually scale it up. So if you ended up getting, say, 600 megawatts, and then over the next 10 years, you needed it scaled up to 1200 megawatts, you could start adding additional small modular reactors online to step up and basically fit that instead of waiting until you need a full gigawatt, which is basically where you are with uh, uh, historical nuclear energy is you need a, a, a very large market to justify a large power reactor. And how how much extra of a, of a leap do you, do you think it requires in the, the public perception and and the work of people like yourself to not just get people over the line of saying, okay, well, we can have a, some new nuclear plants in the middle of nowhere, a long way away to we, we can have them smaller, but at the end of the road or, you know, at somewhere necessarily much, much closer to where people are actually living. Yeah. That comes back to the, the, the concept as to how you can get people to properly assess risk. Uh, that's kind of the same question. Now, part of it, I think, is just the just the fact that this is some cutting edge tech. The same kind of concept, public fears come with uh, genetically modified foods, right? Or artificial intelligence. If Hollywood can spin that to be, you know, horrific, then that tends to be the the, the metric that's used or the the assessment. The analogy that I like to use that makes me hopeful is pasteurization. When that came out, people thought that that was just the stupidest thing you think about, right? If God wanted us to boil milk, <laughs> you know, he'd put cows in volcanoes or something, right? And yet in the United States, it's the law. You you cannot publicly offer milk if it's not pasteurized. And just for consistency, you also want it homogenized, but it has to be pasteurized for safety. Even though when that originally came out, that technology was thought to be just ridiculously stupid, right? Why would you boil milk? <laughs> Fresh milk, right out of the cow. Why would you boil that? Right. And yet we recognize that that's needed for public safety to improve all of our lives and to keep us all safe. We're not going to let people go off and sell raw milk in our grocery stores. We need some control to make sure that that's going to be safe. And so that's my hope is that eventually that will that will win the day is that people will say, well, I don't want people dying by falling off of wind turbines or getting electrocuted doing solar panels. Right. Uh, if if nuclear gives me the lowest number of deaths from accidents per gigawatt hour, that's what matters. That's what matters. And once that resonates with people that it's the safest and that we can do it cost effectively, then it's like pasteurization. It's like, yeah, uh, we need to make sure that we're using this technology. Right. Nuclear can replace itself many times over. Right. One nuclear power plant has makes enough energy to make three nuclear power plants. But you need something like 10 solar panels or something on that order to 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 make seven solar panels is just not a good way to produce energy it's not re, it's not easily replacing itself as nuclear would be right how many how many coal plants do you need to basically mine coal or oil right that takes energy and so eventually i believe it will win the day whether that will be in my lifetime i don't know but i, I would say due to logic inevitably Nuclear will win the day. It'll be the only way, right? I mean, probably one of the things that the solar fanatics like to say is if we just put solar panels over all of France, we covered France with solar panels that would provide all the energy 
for the planet. We just got to cover France with solar panel and solve the transmission issue, right? But it just takes like, like I guess half of Hawaii with nuclear, right? And the best land out there is farmland, right? Because you want the transmission issue and so you don't want to use up farmland, right? That's what's being used a lot already, even here in North Carolina. But once we start stripping off, you know, uh, uh, opening up these forests and, and, and replacing farms with solar farms, eventually, I believe it has to. Logic just says it has to. It just so brilliantly overwhelms the arguments when you look at it from a quantitative risk basis that, that nuclear is just the way to go flat out. Yeah, I think that we couldn't agree more with that. I want to change uh, tax a little bit here. And every now and then people comment on possible substitutes to uranium. And we've seen some articles saying that there was there's this element known as thorium, thorium, you will correct me, correct my pronunciation, which is being used by the Chinese or the Chinese claim to be using in the Gobi Desert. How realistic is that? Or is that a myth? Oh, it's very realistic. The, there's a lot of hype about thorium that is wrong. A lot of people are convinced, and it's kind of like the moon landing, people that deny the moon landing or something. There's like this movement of people that are convinced that the United States went with uranium instead of thorium fuel cycles because you could use uranium for nuclear weapons. And that's flat wrong. It just You, you almost couldn't be more wrong than that. You can use thorium, but you have to use a recycling technology. And the truth is, uranium, as long as some people say we're going to run out of uranium, that's another myth. Uranium is actually more abundant in the Earth's crust than tin. It's it's actually rather plentiful. It's just not economical to remove it with traditional technology. Newer technology actually allows us to remove it from seawater, right? But if you're using the old technology from the 70s, which largely we are, then for it to be economical, there are limited numbers of more resources that we have, but it's still very quite abundant. And so the point is, is that uranium is abundant. Uh, about three parts per million is what we have for uranium. But thorium is about three times that. So there's a lot more thorium in the earth than there is uranium. So it seems to make sense that people like uh, India would be interested in that if you have a lot of thorium deposits. Now, the, the trick with thorium is that it, you basically have to use a breeder reactor kind of concept. With uranium, you can use a breeder reactor where you convert the uranium-238, which is not fissile, into plutonium-239, which is fissile, using a breeder technology. And it's possible to design a reactor so it makes more fuel than it uses. And so that's kind of what you have to do with thorium. You take regular thorium and you start it with a regular fission uranium reactor, but you irradiate the thorium with neutrons, and that absorbs a neutron. Uh, it decays down through protactinium into uranium-233. And the uranium-233 is fissile, just like uranium-235. Uranium-235 is what we use in conventional reactors today with the, with the uranium fuel cycle. Now, the difference is that if I'm going to make nuclear weapons with a uranium fuel cycle, I either have to do it during the enrichment phase, where I'm enriching it. So normally, uranium-235 is only about seven-tenths of a percent natural abundance. And I have to enrich that to about 5% uranium-235 to put in a nuclear reactor so that it will actually have a, a sustained chain reaction. So it will go critical. Now, if I enrich it much higher than that, say up uh, upwards of about 80% or something above that, then I can start discussing taking that uranium and making it into a nuclear weapon. But I still have uranium-238 present. And so I've got to have there's some value up above you know, 50% or whatever where you it, it's got to be really, really high enriched uranium in order for it to be weapons grade. Similarly, with plutonium, when I do the extraction, when I, when I have the, the uranium-238 that was activated in a nuclear reactor and then decayed down through Neptunium into plutonium-239, the plutonium-239 is fissile. And if I, do, if I do a chemical extraction with radiochemistry from the fuel and remove the plutonium-239, that's always going to have a little bit of plutonium-240, where the plutonium-239 absorbed another neutron and didn't fission, but it just stayed a, radio, a, a different radioactive isotope. And But that's not fissile. Plutonium-240 is not fissile. And so there's always some plutonium-240 that's in there. So I'm never able to get pure fissile metal in the uranium fuel cycle, either with uranium enrichment or with recycling, where I'm pulling out the plutonium. I can just get really, really close so that it becomes weapons grade. The difference with thorium is, is just the opposite. With thorium, when I extract, when I do a chemical extraction of the thorium, I, I can remove the pure uranium-233, which is pure fissile material. And that can be used as a nuclear weapon. And so you can do that with, with uh, thorium. You 
and you can make the argument it would be even easier in that sense because you're getting pure fissile material uh, if you're doing the, the thorium fuel cycle. The big difference is that the technology for doing a thorium fuel cycle and a uranium fuel cycle are not the same. You've got to have two different technologies, two different uh, mining and extraction, uh, refining, uh, milling. All of those are going to be two largely. And it's like having tin and gadolinium, right? They're two different metals. And if you want to have both metals, you're going to have to have a cycle for both of them. And this is largely the same with uranium and thorium. If you want to have both fuel cycles, it's basically going to cost twice as much. And the United States basically just said, from what I can tell from the history is, well, we could do both fuel cycles, but we can do one and get everything we want from one. And so the one that's the most developed at the moment at that time was uranium. And so a lot of people are convinced that, uh, and I've seen that from my social media channel, that the, the reason we, do thorium, uh, we don't do thorium is because it's proliferation resistant. And it is in the sense that you don't need to do uranium enrichment, but once you're doing that recycling, it's the same thing that you have with the plutonium. It's the exact same issue if you're doing plutonium weapons versus thorium nuclear weapons. So it is viable. You can do it. Uh, we've done thorium technology in the past, but uh, it just would require that that uh, infrastructure investment, take a lot of investors to invest in a thorium fuel cycle. I guess one other consideration when talking about choice of fuels and so on that that's maybe gone under the radar a little bit is the extent to which um, Russia is kind of embedded in the uh, uranium enrichment process and those sorts of things. So it does, how long would it take, you know, the, the, the Western world or whoever wanted to, to do it to move away from their dependence on Russia and to replicate those kinds of facilities in their, in their own countries? Is, is that a really long-term process or something that could be achieved relatively quickly? So we're already in the process of doing that. Mainly it's what's called HALU, high assay, low enriched uranium. It's getting uranium that's much higher uh, enriched enrichment than 5%, upwards of approaching 20%. And by doing upwards of 20%, by having higher enrichment, you have smaller reactors. And by having smaller reactors, that's generally what a small modular reactor is. It's a smaller reactor with a higher enrichment, but getting that that higher assay uranium is something that we've always, in uh, we've, we've sole sourced out to Russia historically uh, in the recent history. And so the Department of Energy spent some money to get some new facilities starting to be built where we can start doing that locally so that we're not dependent on Russia for that HALU, which would allow us eventually then to go on and do small modular reactor technology commercially. And that's achievable on a one, two year time frame, that, that sort of thing, or how long do these things take? So right now it's just a demonstration and they're in the process of it. Okay, okay. It's it's hard to say if you if you talk to the vendor, right, the vendor is always going to say if there are no hiccups, this is the timeline. And I don't remember what it is, but I think it was within five years, if I remember correctly, when they could start actually having any product. Now, whether the throughput's going to be enough for the demand remains to be seen. Is there going to be a large demand or a small demand? And is are they going to be able to meet it? Uh, hopefully there's a large demand and they won't be able to meet it because then, you know, that means that we're actually utilizing this technology for our benefit. Professor, hydrogen is a topic we have touched upon here before, and it seems to us like there's too much hype around it, but the technology is not yet there to make it a feasible, scalable solution. Is this the correct interpretation of where we stand today, and why is hydrogen relevant or important in the context of nuclear? If we ever really do want to divorce ourselves from fossil fuels for transportation, then we're going to have to... The, the only real viable path forward that we see based on the technology that we have is to replace fossil fuels with some other liquid hydrocarbon. The specific energy that you have in liquid hydrocarbons is sufficient to meet our internal combustion engine needs, jet engine needs, turboprop, all of those engines that we use, diesel engines, in order to, to have a small engine with a small fuel supply that will allow us to maintain the kind of transportation capability that we have, we're gonna need liquid hydrocarbon fuel. And if we're not gonna use fossil fuels, then we can do that if we make synthetic fuel and that requires energy. Now, obviously you don't wanna make a bunch of uh, liquid hydrocarbons with fossil fuels that actually just compounds the problem worse for climate. Uh, and the point is, is that with nuclear, in a, if, if we're willing to invest in it, it could be almost unlimited energy, right? Remember it's more abundant than tin. The latest research actually shows that the amount of natural uranium in runoff from the mountains 
is about nine times the uh, electrical energy needs of the United States every year being dumped in the ocean. And the latest research shows that we could passively remove that at the same price point as digging a big hole. So like with any metal, if you're going to get that metal, you got to go dig a big hole of some sort, make a mine, and then do the milling and the refining to you know pull metal out of dirt. And so that's got an environmental impact. And if we can do that passively by removing it from ocean water, say doing desalination or something like that, then that just makes it so much more sustainable. And if that was the source of energy that we're using, in a sense, it becomes renewable. It's just being renewed by normal water erosion, right? Plate tectonics is going to continue to replace that. Remember, you know, it's more abundant than tin. And that, that largely, this is an interesting one, it's largely the source of geothermal energy. Hmm. Uh, the primordial radionuclides, uh, uranium, thorium, their decay products, and potassium pretty much where geothermal energy comes from. So in that sense, it would potentially be renewable. But if we ever do want to not have to have fossil, so the only thing we would use fossil fuels for, for example, are for plastics and lubricants and products that are not where where the the only thing that we're using the fossil fuels for is for making things and not for burning it. And the only time we would be burning liquid hydrocarbons are ones that were synthetically made with something that was greenhouse gas-free. So an energy source that you would be able to take hydrogen, uh, you know, split the hydrogen and the oxygen. So you've got, li- you know, liquid hydrogen, liquid oxygen, and then you take carbon dioxide and you split the carbon dioxide into uh, oxygen and the graphite. And you convert that into, say, methane, and then you can convert that into uh, heavier hydrocarbons and you can continue to do that. Then you could, in theory, actually have a scenario where you're supplying your transportation with a greenhouse gas free liquid hydrocarbon. And so that's the hype, because theoretically, that's entirely possible. And the technology is there, but it's not in any shape or form cost effective yet. It would be very uh, energy intensive to do that. And so the obvious answer is use nuclear, right? That's the one that, you know, that can replace itself so so many times over easily. It's got a small environmental footprint, no greenhouse gases, and an extremely low death rate per gigawatt hour compared to the other energy sources that are out there. And so that's why there is that potential if we ever do want to divorce ourselves from fossil fuels for our transportation sector. Interesting. Professor, we're coming to an end of our session and we started our episode talking about your TikTok account, which we absolutely love. And I'm going to finish the session with another social media question, which is to what extent, if any, does and should social media play a role in nuclear energy? Well, I would say uh, it's at the moment, there is no other way. And the reason why is that as a general rule, most of us have news sources that we go to to rely on. If you talk to your friends, right, if they're conservatives, they probably listen to Fox. If they're liberal, they probably listen to, you know, almost anything else. And those narratives that come from those news media are going to largely influence anything that we think. In other words, whatever those media sources think that you want to hear, they're going to tell you what you want to hear. And as long as that narrative has some kind of a bias on technology, let's say it's in vitro fertilization, it's uh, artificial intelligence, it's any technology, nuclear, anything, then it's going to be very difficult for you to think of that technology in any other way. Pasteurization is a good example. It's going to be very difficult for you to think of that in any other way than that way that that you uh, believe is the correct way to look at things. And in order to reach somebody to look at things differently, I would actually say it's 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 tantamount to getting somebody to to think about changing your religion. That's that's about the level of difficulty that I believe we have with many people is that that's the way that that it's been incorporated into their worldview, that the right way to do things, the good way to do things is solar and wind and anything else is evil and bad. And you're you're just taking away from evil, uh, taking away from solar and wind because that's the right thing to do. It's the only way to go. And any other solution is getting in the way of doing the right thing. Right. You're either with me or you're against me. Kind of a narrative. And when that's in place. How do you get somebody to look at that differently? How do you get them to think, you know, maybe there's something wrong with my church. Maybe there's something wrong with my worldview. Maybe that, that's a very difficult bridge to cross for people to actually think, you know, maybe the way I've been thinking about things is wrong. Maybe there is a different way of looking at things that's just as right or maybe even more correct. 
And so getting somebody to cross that bridge is extremely difficult, but it is doable. But how do you reach that person with a different way of looking at things in a way that they're able to actually see it from that other perspective? And according to my students, uh, uh, social media is the way to go. If you want to try to ask to, to get somebody to look things differently, then that's the place. It's it's like better than commercials. <laughs> Are there any book recommendations that you would suggest to get people more informed about the subject that we've been discussing over the course of the last uh, hour? I think that the best way is what's going to have the lowest effort with the largest impact. I think that that's what is most likely to get the uh, the big the basically the biggest bang for your buck, and the biggest bang for your buck is something that you can control that's going to make a difference, and that would be basically right there that same thing social media. If you went onto social media and you find content that you believe is is it resonates with you and that actually has the correct message, then you share that. You share that to uh, other people. You like it, you comment, you interact. And what that does is that's going to tell the algorithm, whether it's Facebook or YouTube or TikTok <laughs> or LinkedIn or whatever, it's going to say, people like you want to hear this. And people that are already friends with you or whatever are likely going to be given that. But you need to pick, you need to be selective. Pick those ones that you think actually are going to be able to get somebody to think do I need to change my religion? I mean, it's it's that kind of a message. What kind of a message would actually get somebody to actually think about that? There's something wrong with my church. That's a really hard one for people to think about. Or their politics, right? Maybe my political party, right? Maybe your political party is wrong about something. Maybe your political party is completely wrong about something. And getting somebody to think about that and to really look at it from an objective point of view is what we're trying to, is what you have to do to get people to think, that, you know, maybe it's okay to boil milk. Maybe that's a good thing. That's fascinating. Professor Hayes, thank you very much for coming to the Value Perspective Podcast. My pleasure. I hope it helped. <laughs>